Hello, listeners. I've got a treat for you in this episode 308 of the Dan York Report. While I've been here in Berlin, Germany for the 96th meeting of the Internet Engineering Task Force, I had a chance to sit down and have about a half-hour interview with Greg Farrow of the Packet Pushers podcast. Now, Greg is half the duo that is behind all of the Packet Pushers episodes, the other one being Ethan Banks. But Greg is the, shall we call him, opinionated sometimes cantankerous, curmudgeonly, the Australian, the irreverent, all of this. He's, uh, he, he has certain opinions that he has no problem voicing about the state of networking and everything else. He's also been a bit critical of the ITF at times. And so he was here to you know get in, look at it, be here, be present, do all that. And uh, we had a good wide-ranging interview that talked a lot about where Packet Pushers has come out of, what some of Greg's current thinking around the state of networking is, his views around the ITF meeting and some of the things happened here, and sort of what he sees as what's happening next in the realm of networking. I, uh, it was a fun interview to do. I'm looking forward to doing some things in the future with Greg in some way, shape, or form. And uh, I'll turn you over to the interview now. So I'm here at uh, ITF 96 in Berlin, Germany, with uh, Greg Farrow, who I've known. Uh, actually, I have never met you prior right. today. I've, I, you've been in my ears, though. <laughs> <laughs> I've been listening to you on uh, Packet Pushers. Uh, for a while, so uh, maybe just uh, tell me who you are. Uh, so I'm Greg Farrow. I, um, I'm a 25-year survivor of corporate IT, having been uh, working around the industry. Particularly, I've been freelancing for about 16 of those years, so going from company to company. So I've worked across a range of networks for verticals like banking, medical, legal, government, private, carrier, the whole thing. And then about eight years ago, I started blogging, and then about five years ago, I started podcasting. And then about a year ago, we went full-time with Packet Pushers as a podcast. And yeah. uh, that's probably where I'm, most people might have heard my voice before. Well, and, and I'm intrigued by that. So mm-hmm. could you talk a little bit about that? You and, and Ethan Banks, your other mm-hmm. your partner in crime, mm-hmm. you guys, have, have you're, you're full on. You full-time. Know. So Packet Pushers is a full-time business. It's There's a little bit of serendipity behind it, but we're, emotionally we're both the right sort of people to get, we get along with each other. We're really good friends. We're also in a certain financial position where we can take the risk to leave, you know, corporate enslavement and, and to run our own <laughs> uh, and, and take a chance on running this business as a startup. But then, of course, we've also been, you know, writing for, you know, eight, more than eight years uh, and been building the podcast up. So it wasn't like we went from zero, started a podcast. We had five right. years behind us. And yeah, we're full time with it. We do four shows a week now with the podcast. We write. Uh, we regularly attend events. We do a lot of um, social media work and stuff like that. And that's our full-time gig, just talking about data networking and a couple of adjacent markets. So we also have a show called Data Networks, which is Data Noughts, which is um, in the cloud space, more of the full-stack engineering, what's an, that full-stack engineering professional type thing. And then we have Packet Pushes, which is the weekly show. And, and that's where you began. Right? Yes. It was, was Packet Pushers. I, I just remember it as the Packet Pushers podcast. Yes. Which I always thought was, because I, I like the alliteration, the yeah. Packet Pushers podcast. Yeah. BP. Yeah, but, but that was the beginning of it. That was. And we were doing that show weekly. And then we started to, um, the vendors reached out to us and said, we want you to come to events and record shows. So now we had like two, four, six shows recorded in a single week. And we needed somewhere to publish them. So we created a new channel called the Priority Queue. Um, and then since then, we've continued to maintain two channels because we've actually been recording more content than we can publish if you're publishing weekly. Right. And if you're recording, you know, six shows a month or seven shows a month. Right. And maybe not all your shows are, you know, premium. You know, maybe there's something that's a little niche or a little bit too deep or a little yeah. bit, you know. And so we had the Priority Q channel for that. 
Uh, and then we started more recently, about a year ago, we started a show called The Network Break, yeah. which is our weekly news show, which is 30 right. minutes or less. And that's the one I actually, it's the one I listen to primarily. It's okay. been The Network Break on that. Yeah, that's a little more news and analysis. So yeah. they're like, here's the news and here's my take on it. Yeah. And we go back and forth. We try and get other people in to give us, you know, it's a little hard to rope in other people who are networking centric. Yeah. There's not that many of us around. It's a yeah. tiny market, like <laughs> <laughs> just millions of dollars. You know, but but yeah. You're oh, right. big money, but yeah, yeah. yeah but not. The, well, it's not like servers or, or DevOps. Like DevOps, there's hundreds of thousands of developers, millions of right. developers. But there's not millions of networking professionals. Huh. That's an interesting point. Mm. But uh, and then what's your fourth show? Oh, Data Knots. That's Data Knots, yeah. which is that. And then we have a couple. We toyed around with a couple of others. We have a, a community channel where anybody can bring a podcast along, and if they continue to push it along, then we'll promote them into the Packet Pusher. So it's like oh, really? an incubator. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's an incubator service. People bring. Everybody thinks they've got can do a podcast. Right. Which anybody can, right? But what, Any, what I've always said, anybody can start yes. a podcast. And anybody can record two, three, four, five shows. Right. And then normally it doesn't go much further than yes. that. Yes. And so. We have yes. a special channel because we want to encourage participation from the community. We want people to be able to, you know, blush, you know, write a blog post right. and share it to an audience and get it seen. Right. So people often who who are in the networking can send it to us. We'll publish it on packet pushes, yeah. and then they publish it on their own blogs. We don't own it. It's not ours. Right. It belongs to you. But at least it gets read. Whereas if you publish your, you know, your first fifty blog posts might. Not very right. Yeah, yeah. And, and I should say full disclosure. I actually have an account on your system to mm. publish things. Mm. I just haven't uh, done that in part because I haven't even published on my own blog. Well, for it a works lot. really well. A lot of people in the community have like like write one blog post a year or one blog a couple yeah, of years, right, right? Right. And people aren't going to know that you're, you know, that aren't even going to read that. Right. And, and so that chases people away from, from publishing. So right. No, it's great that you offer that because mm. it does allow people who. You know, have that vehicle, and yeah. I, and I, in, in in fairness, I should look at yeah. some of my own posts. Well, there's two say, sides here, right? We get know. something out of, it, of course, there's content on our blog. Yeah. But you know, it's not ours. We don't own it. It's yours. Right. You can right. take it away if you want. You ask us to delete it. Guess what? We'll do. No well, and, and do you? Um, so I'll ask. Them to, then do you, do you? Um, are you? So you're fine with people republishing stuff that they have on their own yeah, site? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Why not? Yeah, More places it is, the better it is. Right? Well, it's it's funny. That's an interesting change, right? Because hmm. when we started in the world of blogging back in the early in the mid 2000s and stuff and things, there was so much of a focus and has been for so long around the whole idea of not having duplicate content. Yeah. for Google and for SEO purposes and things. But what's fascinating is this change in maybe the last three, four years where mm. people have been looking at more of the discovery channel versus the SEO channel. Well, there's, it, there was a time, it's an old media, right? I think yeah. it's a large thing. Old media always wants to have their content. Well, and the and search, they own it, they wrote it, they pay you for it. Well, in the search thing too, right? Mm. We were so caught up, but, but now search is only one of the channels. Because yes. you get things through social channels, you get things through the packet pushers feed, you yeah, get yeah, things yeah. through the other ways. That's right. RSS so it's, feeds. It's no longer feeds you know for a while it was you know you had to be found in search. So you. Were, I, I think that I think the root of it is old media always wanted to own its content. Yeah. And when it published in the newspaper, they owned the copyright. They could exploit it for wherever they wanted. And then people forgot that you know in the internet everything can be copied. Exactly. Right. And yeah. and the content it's not. Your readership is loyal to you because of your stream, right? Not the one article that you publish. Yeah, it doesn't matter who wrote it and why they gave it to you. But now, the, when I listen to you, you are uh, you're fairly opinionated. <laughs> well, opinionated is one way of putting it. The other way I like to see it or summarize it as is poking the bear, right? <laughs> so I would rather take a perspective that people haven't heard of, 
or a viewpoint, which is a little cantankerous or a little bit, um, you know, against Cantankerous is a good word for you, yeah. I'd say. It's and, not. and then poke the bear and say, you know, wake up, you know, challenge right. you, make you think. Um, I have, my personal perspective is very different to most people's, right? Most people love working for a big company and they see it as safe and they are cherished and the, and the company loves them back. I see a big company as an exploitative <laughs> enslavement um, for which they pay you the bare minimum. Uh, and the people who are in charge are barely competent because they've been promoted to their maximum level of capability, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, this, both of those aspects are actually true, Yes. right? But which one's more fun to talk about? Well, absolutely. Yeah, right? It's funny, when I started the, uh, the Blue Box Voice of Peace Security Podcast um, back in 2005 or so, hmm. a listener had, had been, um, I'd been talking about stuff and stressing a little bit about some of the things we're doing, and, and he said, Dan, he said, you know, the reality is, most people are coming on that show. They want to learn, but they also want to be entertained. Yeah. You know, and, and they want something that's going to be enjoyable. And, and that shifted my thinking a little bit, but you're right. Yeah. And, and part of that's part of why I enjoy listening to Packet Pushers <laughs> is because you and Ethan get into it and you bring that Australian yeah. flair to something that, that you can it's say it. things in a way that, yeah, it's cantankerous and curmudgeonly, but it's, it's uh, I don't Irreverent, know how you describe it. Irreverent. And yeah, but, but, but it, it, it's not mean or something. There's no. A, there's a way that you can do that. Well, it's not, it shouldn't be personal. The mistake that a lot of people make is when they get critical, they go personal mm. and take any sort of criticism as a personal attack. Yeah. What you're criticizing is, what you want to be criticizing in everything you do in life is not the people. Right. Because people are all stupid, right? <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, you're doing it there. <laughs> all people are stupid. And, uh, and okay. somebody <laughs> raised a really interesting point. He said, if you actually take the average level of stupidity, yeah. at least half of people are stupider than that. Okay, but see, okay, here's yeah. the thing, because yeah. like, if I sit here and say, all people are stupid, yeah. okay, there's something more like uh, direct in my tone or something. <laughs> that, I mean, you could do that. You could say, all people are stupid. And yeah. the way it comes off from you is a little different than how it comes off from me. Just don't put your tongue in your cheek and yeah. go, right? You've got to roll with the punches. <laughs> I, I mean, the thing is that inherently big companies, big systems, big bureaucracies, yeah. they all become dumb. Right. Yeah. And and we we fail to see that. We fail to recognise it. And then what we do is we go around and believe ourselves when we say our companies are the smartest and the bestest. Well, inherently that's impossible, because big companies, and and you need big companies, right, to solve big problems. You can't. Right. Small companies can only solve small problems. Big companies can solve big problems. Big companies are dumb, inherently so. <laughs> um, so your company is never going to be the smartest and the bestest. But you go out and believe it, and you pitch it, and you sell it. So. You know, obviously there's a whole tautology going on in that system that, you, you know, people don't... But as soon as you point it out to people, they go, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, my company is... You know, big companies are dumb because there's all these people. You end up with the lowest common denominator. You know, they don't spend their money wisely. They have bureaucracies and processes and managers in charge who don't know what they're doing. Yes, but we conveniently convince ourselves that whatever it is that I'm doing is not dumb and not stupid. And, well, so, on that note, I mean, what is it that you're doing? What are, what are you doing here? You're at ITF. Well, I think the primary purpose was that if I'm going to spend time criticizing the ITF, and I am often critical about some of the things yes, that happen. As an institution, the ITF is, is like any good dumb institution. There's plenty of things to criticize, right? And um, so I thought that I should be trying to get to one to see if the reality matches my, my, my mental model of it, right? And uh, Russ White, who's a very good friend of the show and, and been a great supporter, got me here and said, it's coming to Berlin, you should totally come. So I'm here. 
That's cool. right. And so I've been sitting through a bunch of sessions, um, you know, alternately banging my head on the desk, going, "This is just insane," and this is really awesome, you know, from between the extremes. So in any, you know, which having been a long time participant at the ITF, I can say there are both, right? Yeah, there, there are. Yeah. There are those moments you're saying, "Wow, that's really cool," and then that's there's right. moments like. Why are we rat holing on this? You know, thing? why? What, why? What are you doing? Why are we yak shedding on the color of the packets? You know, yeah. like, and then over here, somebody suddenly starts talking about, you know, using polynomial equations to calculate surface function changes, and I'm going, yes, that is awesome. That's really great. And all the people around me are like, uh, <laughs> what's a polynomial? You know, <laughs> I thought it was great. Oh was like, man. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're here uh, yeah. exploring the world of the idea. Yes, and I also got to sit on an internet society meeting just a few minutes ago. Oh, good. So I was up, uh, the, you know, these are the people that don't just, you know, it's not about, you know, packets and speeds and feeds and, and, and protocols yeah. and systems. These are the people who like um, government bodies, you know, yeah. I represent the government of India, yeah. you know, <laughs> for internet. You know, right. it's a whole other discussion and just reminds you that... Um, in our industry, even though we work in the technology, you know, and there's an engine, there's also this whole hygiene system that operates above it in the yeah. business layer, which is just, you know, so far detached from my version of reality that you like sitting in there going like, wow, this is just, it's just like, yeah. Yeah, I was actually, right before this, I was coming down from a meeting with some of the public policy guests that we, mm. the Internet Society, brought here, and we were talking about routing security. Yes. And some of the things that, that we're doing within the Manners Initiative, some of the things that are happening out there. And, and they were asking some good questions around, well, you know, how can, how can some of these things help make our government hmm. or our, our citizens more safe or, you yeah. know, our networks and things? And, yeah, it's interesting to, to hear some of their concerns yeah. and their space around that. So, and, and you've got to shift your mindset, you know, you, oh, very into, much. into that sort of thing. And you've got to look at it and you've got to go, hmm, oh, oh, yeah. What's neat about the program that I was, that I was there before is some of these folks are regulators that are normally involved with you know, governmental standards bodies like the ITU and, yes. and things like that that are UN based and that are, you know, that only governments can participate in really. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so they come here and they get involved in this kind of stuff and they see it and it's just kind of like, you know, wow, it's a, it's a very, <laughs> yeah. they've got to wrap their mind around. But yeah, you know, yeah. they're, to their credit, they're doing it. That's, yes. that's part of what they're doing in there. I think there's a lot of things. It's like um, in, in, in that sense for them, this must be DevOps to them, <laughs> right? <laughs> Compared to the ITU, which moves at a glacial sort of waterfall yeah, yeah. place, you know. And when they finally get there, the, the iceberg has arrived. <laughs> or it's melted, one of the two, right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know. That's right, yeah, yeah, no, it's a different kind of You can shake mountains there with a glacier, yeah. right? And, and carve the deepest valley and the highest hill with a good-sized glacier. But, uh, <laughs> do you know what I mean? But yeah. a DevOps approach won't build a mountain. No. You know, it'll build a nice road up the side of it and say, mountain, solve problem, road, go. <laughs> right over go. the top, right? There you go. But uh, ITU can actually bring a mountain. Mm. Mm. So it's, it's a challenge, a different sort of problem. It's interesting, yeah. Yeah. So what, um, actually maybe a question for you is, you know, you're here, I know, mm. what are some of the areas that you're most interested in from a networking perspective right now? Um, I guess from my point of view, most of what I'm looking at is there's three things. One is... Well, some of the two, two of them are tightly related. One is this I2RS project. So the uh -huh. idea of we want to be able to put an API on a device and start programming the RIB directly, right? So you might want to have... RIB being router information. Router based. information base. And then the RIB, of course, feeds into the FIB. And the FIB is the hardware inside of a switch, um, which gets loaded into the ASIC. Or in the software switch, it gets loaded into the forwarding plane. So really what we're saying is we need to you be able to... just went into acronym hell for anybody who's yeah. not a networking person who's yeah, listening is, to this. But yeah, but that's yeah, fine. That's okay. 
we're at the ITF. Too bad. <laughs> Suck it up. Right. So you, what we want to, what we've relied on there for the last thirty or forty years is these autonomous protocols that are self-configuring and self-managing. And what we're increasingly realizing is that they're not very predictable. So when you configure an OSPF or an ISIS or a BGP, you can't accurately predict the outcome in any sort of complex system. Once you get beyond a certain number of nodes with a certain number of connectivity points in the graph, you don't actually know what's going to happen until you configure it. Fingers crossed, and by and large you'll get it mostly right. And you know, I've heard the term precision guesswork. It's pretty much how we work, right? Yeah. And really what we need to be able to say is, well maybe that's an answer, that loosely coupled distributed computing problem solved with a, an eventual consistency model. But there are parts of our networks, especially in the data center today, but in the WAN in the future, where we need to directly program and influence it. Hmm. So today we need to be able to say, 10% of my network flows need to be directly programmed because I have to do something with them. I need to do this. And I need to know with absolute precision exactly how it's going to work. So I2RS is a reaction to that. It's partly to do with SDN, mm -hmm. and you know this idea that you know the OpenFlow model kicked us off on this cycle, and we want to be able to directly program something to happen, and we know exactly what. The, and it's that certainty that we want, right? But we don't need to know about it for all traffic in the network. Mostly, we can say the bulk of our traffic just works the way it always has. Great. But what I want to do is here's some special traffic that's been blessed by policy. And we need to do, you know, give it the papal blessing and send it on its way in a specific manner forwarding. And so ITORAS is a step in that direction. I suspect over time we will use less and less autonomous protocols and more and more direct programming as we get smarter and smarter programming around how do we program paths. Hmm. You know, why would you let it do it itself if you can do most of it direct? Hmm. And today we don't have that thinking, we don't have that math, we don't have that smart software. I mean, vendors still struggle to write a decent VGP stack. How the hell are they going to write an SDN control plane that can calculate all possible paths in a graph, in a network graph? So, you know, this is, so that I2RS interests me from that point of view. And then, of course, service function chaining and network functions virtualization remains, mm. to me, is hugely interesting. Um, not just in the data center for that, but in the WAN in particular. So where you'll have a branch and then some traffic will need to go through a WAN accelerator, some traffic will need to go through an IDS, some traffic may need to be you know, logged or emailed or go in a different path. And we're going to need to be able to very granularly do stuff at the edge. But if you're going to start diverting traffic off paths, how do you validate the chain of that path? Well, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Okay. And so service function chaining is how do you calculate paths through a service graph, hmm. and then validate that the end-to-end -end network path through the service function chain actually is operable. It's uh, when when I when I just hear you talking about this, I, I, it's one of those moments when I realize too there's there are so many different aspects of networking. networking. Well, the ITF, the well, ITF has also got oh you know security. They're talking about. Uh, new versions of SSL with crypto, like the next TLS 1.3 will be... Oh yeah, it was, um, I, I, I was here this past weekend for the hackathon working mm. on the DNS team, but then I was asked to be one of the judges on the second day, and so I stopped working on the team, and I, was, mm. I became one of the judges, but as we were judging these projects, there were, uh, you know, I was reminded again of how much work happens within the ITF, but also how much work there is in networking, mm. because there were, there were people doing I2RS, there were people doing you know, I, I, I don't even know all the acronyms no, yeah. because I'm sitting there watching these slides and just saying, yeah. you know, I've been doing networking for, you know, 30 years now or so yeah. and stuff and, and, and I got the basics of some of these things. But I looked at some slides like, you know what, I, I have 
I have no idea really exactly what that what the, they're showing there. Why? I mean, well, why? why? Yeah. yeah. Why? There was I think the, perhaps and, and one of the I, things I was also, that, of course, reminded that that there's a lot of engineers that need to be better at communicating why they're doing things. But that's another yeah, issue. I, well, I, I think. So one of the things that's changed for me, I, I'm no longer, a, I, I actually don't subscribe to that theory. Sure, there are engineers who can't communicate very well, but equally there are managers or leaders who communicate very poorly. Oh, 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 right. oh no, so, D- don't get me wrong. Uh, yeah, There's yeah. a lot of, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying engineers are any less communicative than others yeah. people out there. I'm saying that there were some people who need to get a little clearer on what they're actually doing or what problem yeah. they're trying to solve. Why, why they're doing it. Why yeah. they're doing In it. In effect, yeah. Yeah, that is probably, you know, um, even though the RFCs have a lot of why in the front, it often doesn't actually explain the business case why. Oh yeah. It only ever explains the technology case why. Right. And you're sort of looking at that going, all right, I see your technology, you're introducing, like the one I'm thinking about today is BGP link state. Mm-hmm. So fundamentally what they're trying to do is take a shortest path SPF algorithm and jam it into BGP, along as an IGP. So BGP, the original mm-hmm. exterior gateway protocol, now is an interior gateway protocol, and shoving all of the stuff that we use in, say, OSPF or ISIS into BGP as a link state and saying, boom, now we don't need an IGP anymore. <laughs> and I'm like, why? You know, right. I, and, and, yeah. I, I, the conclusion I came to in the end was I could get right behind BGP link state if we could deprecate OSPF and ISIS. And, and you know, vendors, if you're listening, this is a great idea because think of all the resources you'd free up if OSPF was frozen and deprecated today. And they'd be able to go and do great stuff on this new opportunity. Um, you know, could be awesome, couldn't it? It could be. It, you know, it's fun. <laughs> but actually, it, it's interesting. In in the last five years that I, I've been involved in the in the ITF for about ten years now, mm. and in the last five, what's interesting is I've heard a lot more people talking about deployability. Yes. You know, there's been a bit of a change within the ITF in terms of. And some of that's been, we're getting a few more operators. We need more. We need more network operators. But as you and I have talked about separately, yeah. it's challenging to necessarily get somebody to have the bandwidth to be able to, to oh, read yeah. them email lists or come to a meeting or do something like that. Yeah. But, um, but we are starting to get a little bit more of that thinking around, okay, so it's great to build this, but then we need to get it out there yeah. and get people actually use it. Yeah, and I think a lot of the times um, these things come, sometimes these things come from people who really shouldn't be suggesting something. It's like a hobby for them to come up with crazy ideas and then because they're involved here, the organization lets them. So, so part of the ITF is that if you make a suggestion and you, you write it up, it'll float around like, the turd yeah. in the, like a turd in the bottom of a bowl, right? Um, it's floating fine, um, you know, and maybe it, maybe it should just be flushed, but maybe it just keeps floating, and in which case everybody thinks that's a great thing, right? And there's a certain amount of that happens in standards bodies when, but so what the idea of sometimes lack is ability to self-criticize or self-realize that some things are just not going to float and therefore we should get rid of them before they start right we shouldn't have to deal with them right you right know, the community i think i talked about it what they actually sort of need is a committee a committee of sanity or common sense and go that just doesn't make any sense yeah take, but we're, take, we're lacking that outside of Yes. standards in our general society yeah welcome to well welcome to it generally yeah. oh yeah or or just life as yes you're, you're sitting there in the uk with your latest uh, political fund and oh yeah they're doing yeah. okay i mean uh, there's two sides to every coin right right at the end of the day brexit's going to be very good for local manufacturers but not so good for people whose position is comfortable and you know whatever <laughs> so it's going to be an interesting time but i would i am actually quite positive about the opportunity for change so anytime you can create disruption on a national scale, 
the people can be driven to engage. Like the big thing about Brexit is for the first time in 20 years we had a 75% turnout in the election. That is unparalleled. We were talking about just a few years ago um, national elections with under 40% of vote. Right? So literally your government is in power with less than one in five, like with sort of numbers of one in five people voted for you. Wow. So this is a massive, so there's a positive there, right? Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm not so sure about the disruption. It's looking like it's happening over in my country right now, but yeah. we don't need to get into that right no, now. No, 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 <laughs> I'm just saying for every disruption, there's there's a pain, but there's usually a gain. And yeah, should that's be, true. There's two sides to every coin, right? That's true. Well, in, in this space, I mean, the space right here with the ITF and other mm. things, I mean, it, it, in so many ways, it is all about the disruption of traditional yes. things and traditional things. So maybe a question to sort of wrap up on is, I mean, outside, forgetting the ITF for a minute, but within just in general, within networking space, within the future of the internet types of things, what are the most interesting aspects for you? I know you've, and I should preface yeah. this while you're thinking for a second, to say I know you've been doing a, a future of the network survey, um, set of uh, episodes, I guess mm. I'd say, within, yep. within that series that you've been looking at, but kind of in that big picture, what are some of the things of most interest to you? I think the biggest interest is the idea that software matters more than hardware. So for the last 30 years in networking, hardware has always defined what work can achieve. You know, we couldn't drive a switch, you know, 48 ports of one gig was the maximum we could achieve, and then it was 10 gig. Now, but we never really had enough bandwidth, right? Now we're talking about customers just moving to 10 gig and probably never needing 25 gig in the next decade. So now we're looking at hardware in the data center that will last for 10 years, but the software features in that hardware are now going to be what describes it. So instead of being limited by forwarding performance or port density or um, you know power consumption, we've got all that licked. So now it's how much, what type of forwarding? Can I do MPLS? Can I do dynamic MPLS? Can I have 20 MPLS tags? Maybe I want to dynamically specify those tags to go in there. So the question is going to be, I'm not going to buy hardware anymore, or maybe I'm going to buy it a lot less. Or if I'm going to buy it, it actually isn't all that relevant in the same way that servers. When you buy an x86 server, do you think of the server first or do you think of the app? Uh, yeah, I don't think of the hardware. No, but back in the 1970s, we were buying microcomputers and what was the first thing you thought of? Yeah, what was the CPU performance? The CPU how much performance, RAM did it have? Did it have? What did it have? All that kind of and stuff. And the app. operating system came with the hardware yeah. and with the, app, with the hardware came the app. So Wang word processors, pick accounting software, mm. right? So in networking, we're going to go through this massive trend where software becomes the key point. Hardware continues to define parts of what the software can achieve. You know, how many forwarding entries you've got. Right. And now we're talking about, for the first time in 30 years, we're talking about what's the speed of the TCAM loading new entries into TCAM. Because we want to reprogram the forwarding table, maybe 500 entries a second. But we've never had that problem before because dynamic routing protocols like BGP didn't work that fast. So that's mm. never been a design constraint. So I think, and you know, that once we've got software, we can now start to do a whole bunch of new things. So we're talking about apps running on switches. We've got people running Docker containers on switches. I saw that in firewalls, <laughs> and so things like firewalls in Docker containers on switches, or flow uh, people taking flow exports into Docker containers to do localized stuff, or uh, you know, there's so m or load balances inside Docker containers. Well, and, and that's fascinating because all of a sudden that switch is no longer. I mean, it, I mean, it's not really. A, it's not really a switch. It's a. It's a switch with a computer inside of yeah, it as right. well, right? Hmm. It's a. It's a weird, it's something we yeah, never we're had we're before. We're talking now about switches that run Xeon CPUs and terabyte class 
SSDs and 64 gigs of memory. Right. right. At which point you start to say, is that really a switch or is it a computer with a bunch sure. of extra So, And then slots? you start to say to yourself, well, what's more important in the network? Is it bandwidth or is it services? Is it about, or what should services be an app? Right. Right? So should it, if it's an app, then should I be hosting it in a VM on a in an open stack or a VM, you know, right. ESX hypervisor? Or should it be in the switch itself? Or if it's in the switch itself, what's the disadvantage? What's my trade-offs? Right. So all of a sudden, we're not arguing about this switch or this chassis or this um, this type of thing. All I'm at, what we're actually talking about is where should the software be? Yeah. And what sort of, so is it, or should I just be focusing on flat out bandwidth and just let the app developers use hard proxy? Right. So all of a sudden we're not talking about SFP modules and long range fiber optic cables and LC versus SC connectors and you know pointless, right. largely pointless discussions and moving into much more value added discussions where the business wants to get. <laughs> so what comes next? Uh, I think uh, it's going to be more SDN and more NFV ultimately. The next generation of enterprise networking is enterprise networking is largely dead. Like it's not going to change much for the foreseeable future. Um, what we're going to see is a lot of innovation going to service providers around OpenStack, and then once that stabilizes, I think the enterprises are going to bring OpenStack into the data centers and say, because the service providers have proven it out. So the service provider is going to use it to try and offer firewalls and virtual routing and malware scanning and all that sort of stuff. They're going to fail miserably. They're going to waste billions of dollars building these things because you know big companies can't do stuff at scale, right? If you're going to build something at that, like electricity scale, right? The reason that we don't have highly customized electricity is because it just doesn't make sense when you're delivering it to every house or every business at that sort of scale. The reason that electricity is dumb and stupid and the electrons aren't shiny is because it, at scale it has to be simple. Right. Okay? right. Big companies simple because otherwise, because big companies are inherently stupid. Right? <laughs> so the idea that carriers are going to provide these deeply variegated services that you know value added and enhanced is patently false. Right. They're going to have to just dumb down on bandwidth and say we're just a bandwidth provider operating at scale. How do we iterate? You know, to gigabit, terabit multi-terabit and deliver that at high performance and at a profit margin that we can make. But, but, and this is one of those fundamental tensions of our time, right, is that the, the traditional, the incumbent, the telecoms, all of those, they don't want to be big, fat, dumb clients. No. They want to be, they want to have a role in there. And so that's... But the, the reality is, is that like, you know, when we used to use telcos to deliver voicemail, how happy were we? <laughs> Not very, right? When we asked the telcos to create us an, a messaging service and we got SMS messaging, how happy were we about that? Not very, right? Uh, think of all the services you've gotten from your telcos over the last, say, 20, 30, 40 years, and think about how happy you as a customer have been with those. Then, demonstrably, though, the telcos are idiots for even bothering to try today and to deliver services because they've never been successful in decades of doing it. You know, Greg, I, I actually haven't looked at the sponsors, the packet pushers, <laughs> but, I, but I'm guessing you probably don't have any telcos sponsoring you. Sure we do. Right? Do you? Yeah, well, they come in and try and convince people of the alternate view. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's a chance to get in front of you know. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the thing is, so just just to jump onto that, right? It's fair for me to criticise you, but don't take it personally, right? Uh -huh. It's not personal. My criticism is often fair and provocative. Yes. But it's not unreasonable. Come and engage with me. Yeah. And you know what? If you can convince, me, if you can put your case forward and convince the audience that I'm a fool, who's the winner? Yeah, that's true. Right. 
And which is the more powerful marketing? An ad on a, in an airport wall? Right. <laughs> or being, getting on a podcast and talking to that niche audience. That's the value of packet pushes. Now, Just you say niche, gears. though, but uh, you've got a fairly good size audience these days, right? Yeah, we, um, we're delivering 30,000 downloads a day on a weekday. Um, each show gets downloaded sort of somewhere between ten and 20,000 times. That's pretty episode. serious it, There's a couple of different shows and there's different. Yeah. So some shows are 10, 12, some shows are 15, 18,000. Um, it's a fair size and our audience surveys suggest that they're very high level, highly technical. Hmm. And they appreciate the way that we don't overdo the ads. We don't pander to the, you know, we don't dumb it down. We try to be very nerdy up, like keep yeah, it high. It, as anybody listening to this can attest, I'm <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, there's no value in in uh, you know masturbating yourself about how shiny your cables are or whether your box has 24 ports or 48 ports. Anybody with a moderate level of competence can achieve that. And if you're that sort of person, you're probably not listening to this podcast, <laughs> and you're probably not listening to the Packer Pushers podcast. Well, and, and so on that note, if people want to listen to the Packer Pushers podcast, where do they go? They go to packetpushers.net, or you can find us on iTunes, and you can also find us whoring ourselves all over Facebook, Twitter, Google+, LinkedIn. <laughs> See, there's that Australian thing, okay? Because, like, you know, I'm just not going to say that type of thing, but you, yeah. you get away with it. Yeah, that's what it is. It's whoring. <laughs> You know, there's prostitution of, of a certain type and you know I'm selling what I've got <laughs> all right well uh, well how did you wind up in England anyway I married a beautiful English woman oh, well that will do it mm. that will do it and uh, my two daughters of course um, go to school so yeah, well, I live in uh, central UK and amongst the green hills and rock walls and cows on the common <laughs> <laughs> and you talk about networking globally and Yes. And uh, do all of that. Yeah. That's pretty much it. I, yeah. I'm one of the blessed people who get to fly over to these conferences and be exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, thanks, Greg, for your time. This was fun. And uh, if people want to go and do, uh, do more of that, we'll encourage them to go to packetpushers.net and That's see right. what goes on. I look forward to meeting you there and uh, hearing more and get involved in the community. People can come and blog on Packet Pushers if you've got something to write about networking. Uh, if you've got a podcast, maybe you want to start your own podcast, we can put you in the community channel. If you want something to share, you know, get in contact. It's not just about us. It's about uh, a community. Sounds good. Well, I uh, and, and maybe I'll get inspired to go and uh, publish a couple of my posts over there as well, too. You'd be most welcome. All right. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Dan. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And if you want to go listen to more of the Packet Pusher shows, you can, of course, go to packetpushers.net. And you're welcome to leave comments about this episode anywhere you find it on social media or on soundcloud.com slash danyork. And for more of my audio and writing, you can go and check out danyork.me. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.